Yeah, that's the big discovery of IFAS, that that self exists in everybody, can't be damaged, and is just beneath the surface of these parts, such that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously. And it knows how to heal. It knows how to heal in the inner world. It knows how to heal in the outer world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Drew Horning, and this podcast is called Love's Everyday Radius. It's brought to you by the Hoffman Institute, and it's stories and anecdotes and people we interview about their life post-process and how it lives in the world radiating love. This podcast contains discussion of sensitive topics, including self-harm. Please use your discretion. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Dr. Richard Schwartz is with us today. Welcome, Dick. Thank you, Drew. It's an honor to be invited. I am so excited for this conversation. When Hoffman and internal family systems come together, I think some interesting things gets transpired. There's so much overlay, and there are a couple key distinctions that it feels like are important to elevate today, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not totally familiar with the Hoffman process, but I have a number of friends who uh, have benefited, and one close friend who's on the way. She, she's filling out all the paperwork now. Ah, uh, and the paperwork is legendary and epic in its length and its depth. Yes, <laughs> she would agree. Dick, you started as a systemic family therapist and an academic. You were grounded in the systems thinking and developed internal family systems known as IFS in response to all the clients' descriptions of parts within themselves. And I'm looking forward to hearing that kind of origin story. And you've now founded the IFS Institute. You've written multiple books of which recently the two that feel really geared to the public are, first, there are no bad parts. And the second one, you are the one, you are the one you've been waiting for? That's correct, yeah. It feels like those two books sum up part one and part two of what IFS is all about. Does that feel like those, the titles of those represent key components of IFS? Very much. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but now that you, you mention it, that's great. Yeah. Will you tell us your origin story? I know it involves being a family systems therapist. You're in with families. You're, you're learning. You're growing. And you're starting to notice some things. Take us there into the room as you work with families. Sure. I was one of those obnoxious family therapists that thought we'd found the Holy Grail and that these analysts and people are wasting their time mucking around the inner world, we could change all the symptoms by just changing the family structures. It looks like you're old enough to have been around during those days. There was a big polarization. So I assiduously avoided studying anything that had to do with intrapsychic work and decided to prove family therapy was the best. So gathered together 30 kids with bulimia and their families and did an outcome study. In about 1981, I think the study was, found that it wasn't true that we could 
at least my kids kept didn't realize they'd been cured. They kept binging and purging. So out of frustration, I began asking what was going on that, that kept them doing that. And they started talking this language of parts, which was, you know, I thought, okay, that's a nice metaphor for their thoughts and emotions. But I didn't have any other kind of conceptual frame for it at the time. I didn't think of myself that way by any means. But they kept insisting that these parts had a lot of autonomy and had relationships with each other. And I had a few clients that were extremely articulate about that whole inner phenomena. And so I got intrigued. And again, the fact that I hadn't studied other intrapsychic systems came in handy because I really had to listen to and trust what the clients were describing. Initially, I made the mistake that most therapists still make, which is to think that they are what they seem. So the critic is just a kind of internalized parental voice, and the binge is an out-of-control impulse. And so I was trying to get my clients to control the binge and argue with the critic. And they were getting worse, but I didn't know what else to do until the first client I was aware of who had a a really severe uh, sex abuse history and also cut herself in addition to her bulimia. And by then I'd heard about the gestalt empty chair technique because I was hearing about four and five and six parts. I'd have all these chairs lined up and they'd be hopping all around the room. And <laughs> and so one session I decided I wasn't going to let my client leave until that cutting part had agreed not to do it to her. So we had it in the chair and after a couple hours of me badgering it and, and my client badgering it, it finally agreed not to cut her. And I opened the door to the next session, and she's got a big gash down the side of her face. And I just emotionally collapsed. That was a kind of turning point in the history of the model because I shifted out of that coercive, we're going to beat you place to just getting curious out of desperation. And I just said, why do you do this to her? And I said, I can't beat you at this. And in doing that, you're talking actually not to her, but to the part inside of her. That's right, to the part that's in this separate chair. And the part said, you know, I don't really want to beat you. And so then I got even more curious, then why do you do it? And the part proceeded to talk about how when she was being abused as a child, it had to get her out of her body and contain the the rage that would get her more abuse. And this cutting came in handy then and was needed. And so I shifted again. Now I'm not just curious, but I have a kind of appreciation for the heroic role it played in her life. And I could convey that to the part. And it broke into tears because everyone had been fighting with it or hating it. Finally, somebody's listening to it. And so I tried that same curious approach with other people's parts. And they all liked it. All these very extreme parts, finally somebody's listening to them and would share their secret histories of how they got their roles in the past. So as I did that over and over, I started to think maybe these things aren't what they seem like. Maybe they're valuable parts that got forced into these roles, which is the way I see it now after all these 40 years, that there are literally no bad parts. The basics of the model are that it's the natural state of the mind to be multiple, to have parts, what I call parts, other systems called ego states or subpersonalities, and that we're born with them, and then they are here to help us in our life. But 
trauma and attachment injuries and bad things that happen to you force them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be destructive, but often were necessary at some point in your life. They're frozen in those times, most, much of the time. They literally still think that you're five years old, Drew, and they, they need to do this still. And they also carry what we call burdens, which are extreme beliefs and emotions that came into you during the trauma and attach to these parts and then drive the way they operate almost like a virus. So that's what I, just by staying curious, that's what I began to learn and began to shift from seeing it just as a metaphor to really believing that there's this whole inner system of real inner beings that constitute the mind, and then tried to get clients to, to get to know their parts rather than try to control them. Yeah. So as you have done this work over 40 years, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So when you had that initial sort of rewriting of your understanding as you went through it, over these 40 years, have you had any changes of heart or the experience has actually proven the model even more valuable and more sustainable? Well, yeah, there are several times where I almost quit. Initially, I was hearing both about protectors like the critic, you know, the parts that I mentioned, the binge part. But I was also hearing about these very, very vulnerable parts of people that have been hurt really badly and were stuck in really terrible scenes. And it felt like, let's get to that as soon as we can because that's what needs to heal. And so I would encourage clients to go there. And then I had a couple of clients that had these horrible backlash, clearly related to the session, experiences right after the session. I had one client get into a car accident shortly after the session and just claim she didn't see the car. And another client just had huge physical headaches and really intense kinds of fevers. And I just thought, Jesus, these systems are so much more delicate than I thought. And I'm mucking around kind of blindly. I either have to learn more about how to do this safely, or I need to just stop doing it. So I worked with my parts a lot just to get the courage up to, to get curious. And I had some clients, I, I just would ask them, what am I doing wrong here? And the parts that had been doing the backlashing told me that I was violating their rules because they'd spent her lifetime locking these other parts away and trying to keep them locked up. And here I came in and burst open the doors and had them come pouring out, and they were going to punish her and me for violating that. So a lot of the, I think what is partly unique about IFS is that it's so systemic in the sense that we don't just think about one part at a time, but we think about the whole system. And a lot of that comes from my family therapy background, where I brought, I imported systems thinking, and actually a lot of family therapy technique to these inner worlds. And it all plays out in a very similar way to external families. Yeah, I think you've mentioned that before, that it's an interactive system. And these parts are talking to each other. They have 
dialogue with each other. And rather than go right to the core wound, part of what you're saying is we actually have to engage these parts and talk with them and ask them questions. And Dick, I think if there's one word you've used the most here, it would be curious. Would you put that at the top of the eight C's of capital S self? Yeah, in the sense of if you can access curiosity, which is often a lot easier than compassion or a bunch of the other C words, then as you interview the parts, those other C's will show up. So curiosity is sort of the first level that gets you to where you want to go. And, you know, I didn't describe self yet, but that's the big discovery with IFS, that as I was trying to use family systems technique to change these inner systems, I would try to have people talk to the parts themselves or have parts talk to each other. And I was finding that as they were doing that, like, let's say I had you try to talk to your critic, and you were initially curious about why it calls you names. And then in the middle of talking to it, you suddenly were furious with it. And it reminded me of family sessions where I'd have two people talking to each other. It's going okay. And then a third family member comes in and makes some comments, and it all goes south. I thought, maybe the same thing's happening in this inner system. So I began, I would ask you, Drew, could you find the one who's so angry at the critic? And could you ask it to just relax back for a few minutes so we can just keep getting to know it and maybe help it not have to be so hard on you? When I would do that with clients, most of the time they'd say, okay, it did. And I'd say, now how do you feel toward the critic? And it would be some version of curiosity. I'm just kind of interested in why it calls me names or even suddenly they would have compassion for it where they hated it seconds earlier. And when they were in that state, things would go well. The part would relax and would tell its story. And my client could have a lot of appreciation for how it had to protect them. And so we could start the healing process. When I would ask clients, what part of you is that that's so curious and compassionate? They would say, that's not a part like these others. That's me. That's myself. And so I came to call that The Self with a capital S, and that's, that's held up now. I was astounded because I had studied attachment theory that says for you to have any of those kind of qualities, you had to have had certain kind of parenting during a critical period in your childhood. And I was working with clients that not only didn't have good enough parenting, they'd been tortured on a daily basis. There was no way they got that from a caretaker. And here it was still showing up. If I just got enough parts to open space, this other person would pop out with all these seaward qualities and knew how to heal, knew how to begin the healing process. I could get out of the way. Yeah, that's the big discovery of IFS, that that self exists in everybody, can't be damaged, and is just beneath the surface of these parts, such that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously. And it knows how to heal. It knows how to heal in the inner world, it knows how to heal in the outer world. When you work with patients, when you work with clients, and when you've been interviewed, I've listened to a bunch, the Rich Roll, the Aubrey Marcus, and even to a certain extent, Tammy Simon. What I hear as you ask these uh, hosts questions about themselves, you turn the tables on them and they're so vulnerable to be willing 
to share and engage with you about the parts inside them. And as you go about that, I see so much curiosity, so much compassion. It's almost like you're embodying the eight C's as you help them engage with their parts. Yeah, that's a a great observation because the degree to which I can do that, if I can be in self with most anybody, they sense the safety, they sense the permission and the acceptance, and that relaxes their protectors so that their self emerges much more quickly. And then when I get access to a little of their self, then there's a huge amount we can do. So that was the other big kind of revelation. I Again, I had this allergy to intense intrapsychic stuff where the therapist becomes that good healing object. So I was thrilled to find the self who could do it, and I didn't have to get involved much. And then I came to realize, no, my presence is really, really important. Not in the same way it is in those kinds of therapies, but I have to be in those eight C's for people to feel safe enough to do the work. You know, I have to share that in preparation for this conversation, I did lots of research, listened to you and a lot of podcasts, and then sat down on the couch one day by myself and just brought to life and tried to accept, normalize, welcome all these parts inside of me. And it was such a freeing experience. It was slightly meditative, just self-reflection. Another word you use a lot is unburdening, the unburdening of self. That's, I think, part of the experience I had. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. As I said earlier, these parts accumulate these extreme beliefs and emotions that we call burdens from intense experiences, particularly when you're young and carry them like a virus. And when they're willing to unburden, to release those extreme beliefs and emotions, which I think Hoffman process has a a way to do that, the parts will immediately transform into their naturally valuable states. So the unburdening is in some ways equivalent to healing. Although to get to an unburdening, you usually have to go through several different steps with the part that you're working with. When you talk about the different steps, is that in a one way of understanding that is the various questions you engage it with? Yeah. Again, because of the backlash experiences I had, we now almost always start with a protector, not what we call an exile. So not with one of the very, very vulnerable parts. So I might start with your critic. I would have you notice it in your body. And then I would ask how you feel toward it. And if you had an attitude toward it, we'd get that to step back until you did say, you know, I'm interested in why it calls me name, some version of that. So you're curious. And you would ask it that question. And what's it afraid would happen if it didn't do that? And in answering that, it's revealing usually what it's protecting. So if I didn't make you feel like shit, you might get out there and be seen and, and be creamed by the by the public. So I have to keep you small this way. So generally, these critics, that's one of the three or four different common roles, the reasons they're doing what they're doing. Once we get that information, we can give it a lot of appreciation for at least trying to keep you safe that way. And also this question, ask it how old it thinks you are, time you get a single digit. It still thinks you're six years old and it needs to keep you small. 
like it did back then. Probably it really did need to do that back then. So we can show a lot of appreciation for how hard it's worked your whole life to protect you, but update it. I'm not six anymore. I can handle more than I could back then, and I'm not in the same context anymore. Sometimes these parts are totally shocked. They, they really had no idea. And then as we get permission, then we negotiate permission from that critic to go to what it protects, which are usually the parts that were hurt so badly uh, when you tried to shine and got creamed. And, and we don't go there until we get permission. And then we go, and first, you would see yourself as a boy often. It's not always the case, but that's the most common. I would have you try to connect with that boy until he really trusted you. And sometimes that takes a while, because they have this, where have you been? You know, what? you didn't protect me back then. Why should I trust you? But if you're in self, you can often pretty quickly earn their parts trust. And then... When that was in place, I would have you ask the boy what he wants you to know about what happened to him and how bad it was in the past. And you likely see some scenes from your childhood when he felt fully witnessed about how bad it was. I would say, Drew, now I want you to go into that scene and be with him in the way he needed somebody. And you would say, okay, I'm there. And how are you being with him? I'm just holding him and helping him. Trust that he's not alone. And ask if there's anything else he wants you to do back there for him. He wants me to, to tell my father to never do that again. Okay, could you do that for him while he watches? So we do whatever that, what's ever needed by the part back there. You know, you're just kind of sitting there telling me what's happening. It's not like we're doing it psychodramatically or anything, although sometimes we do that. When he feels complete with that, then. I'd say, let's see if he's ready to leave that time and place and come with you to the present or to a fantasy place of his choice. And so you'd bring him maybe right there where you are, let him know he never has to go back, and you're going to take care of him. And, and then just ask if he's now ready to unburden, to release the extreme beliefs and emotions that he still carries in his body. Most parts at that point are ready. They see they don't need him anymore. You could ask him where he carries all that in his body or on his body, and he could tell you. And then we have a kind of, uh, we borrowed from shamanism the elements. So ask him if he wants to give it up to light, water, fire, wind, earth, or anything else. And he picks one of those, and we have the light shine on him, and he sends it all out of his body into the light. You ask how he feels now, almost always they say, I feel much lighter and more joyful and wants to play now and wants to be entirely different. Then we'll bring in the protector to see it doesn't need to protect this boy anymore, and now what does it want to do now that it's freed up? And we help it into its new role, and it might have to unburden also. I love the way in which you compare to veterans. You say, thank you for your service. Thank you for, for your service in protecting me. And there's sort of a secondary piece to that is you're no longer needed. In this role, yeah. In this role. Yeah, because it's really important. They, they're always reluctant to give up the role if they don't know there's a, a better alternative. Uh, Some of them do just want to rest and lay on the beach or something. But most of them, you know, a lot of times, like the critic we've been focused on, 
you ask, what would it like to do now instead, now that it trusts it doesn't have to do this? A lot of times it wants to be your cheerleader. It wants to support you and get you out there. It's often the opposite of the role it's been in. So we just find out what it wants to do now and help it into that role. But it's always valuable. That's why I say there are no bad parts. I can only say that after having done this with rapists and murderers and people that have done heinous things in their lives. And we go to those parts and they share their secret histories and and they're stuck in horrible abuse times and they carry the energy of their perpetrator. As we unload all that, they transform too. It's a radical idea, this notion of no bad parts. I mean, as I'm thinking about the entryway for the uninitiated IFS person is almost you're walking down the street, you're triggered, something happens. You know, at Hoffman, we say, never waste a good trigger. And that feels sim- akin to there's no bad parts. So if you notice something, get curious and that's a part inside you and engage it. And what does it need? And how old is it? Yeah, it's very similar that way. There are what we call tormentors in our life with a hyphen between the tor and the mentor. So by tormenting you, they're mentoring you about what you need to heal. (laughs) And then what they trigger in you become what we call trailheads. So as you focus on that emotion and you just stay with it, it'll take you to the part from which the emotion is coming, and then you can start the process. The irony that a guy who was resistant to the internal world is in a sense, mapping out all these various avenues and trails to various parts. It's fantastic. (laughs) It is very ironic. There's a lot of ironies I've run into along the way. But yeah, I mean, my father was a big scientist. Three of my brothers are. And I feel like I've just been a good scientist. It's all been trial and error. I, I didn't make any of this up. But I've just been open. My father's big line to me was, Follow the data, even if it takes you way outside your paradigm. And that's what I've done. You know, similar to Kristen Neff and uh, Brene Brown, where they bring the scientist mind and way of learning and assimilating of data to the personal, the interpersonal, to the psychic experience. It's a great combination. Totally, totally, yeah. I just want to go back to this idea of your lack of formal training around some of this stuff and how that helped you. Over 50 years ago, Bob Hoffman started the process and and sort of downloaded it. And he was really a tailor. He worked with clothes. He, He had no formal training. And I think now that you talk about your own history, that that people have talked about that being an advantage to him because he had no biases. Do you see that? Yeah, I had no choice but to be in that beginner's mind and and really trust what everybody was telling me about it. And I think that's been the obstacle for other people to get this, or at least to get as much of it, because they, they come with all these presumptions that really get in the way of that. There's a word we use a bunch in Hoffman, which is surrender. And it feels like that's part of what you're talking about here, surrendering into the unknown, into the dialogue of parts that you're not sure what's going to happen. Absolutely. And every session then becomes a kind of adventure so that you're never bored as a therapist. You just, wow, where is this going to go? And you also don't have to be very clever because 
you don't have to make the big interpretation. You can just wait because the part's going to tell you what it is. It's not like you got to figure it out and give that gift to your client. You're staying curious. You're getting your client to stay curious. It all becomes revealed. It seems a key distinction that you're making there that it, although it's therapist and facilitator supported, it's not therapist and facilitator dependent. And that we have access to these parts to us on our own. Absolutely. You know, I, I've gotten very interested in the whole psychedelics movement. There's this organization, MAPS, it's been doing the research with MDMA. And the guy doing most of that is Michael Mithoffer, who's an IFS therapist. In their research, he would find that without any cueing uh, from the facilitator, at some point, people would spontaneously start doing IFS on their own. I think the MDMA and other psychedelics kind of put the protectors to sleep, releases a lot of self, and then it is just something people know how to do. He kept track. 80% started doing IFS without any help from the therapist. So it was very validating that I feel like I just stumbled onto something we all know how to do once our protectors relax. Yeah, another, another word we use at Hoffman is integration, the integration of the quadrinity. And when you describe that, it sounds like that's organically what's happening and a kind of integration. Yeah, I think that's right. There are four goals of IFS, one of which is to bring harmony to this polarized inner system. So the parts get to know each other and know who they really are rather than their images of each other and communicate and, and to have self be the one facilitating all that, like an inner therapist. That's the third goal. The first goal is sort of the no bad parts idea that helping each of these parts be liberated from the extreme roles they've been forced into so they can be who they're designed to be. And then the second goal is for them to all start to trust self as a leader because a lot of times they had no clue that there was this great leader inside. And it takes a while for them to really feel like they don't have to run everything because most of them have been like, in family therapy, we'd call them parentified children. They were too young to run the person's life, but they still had to do it. And they're in over their heads. They're, they've just been waiting for somebody to come along and say, we got this. We can, you can relax and do something else. Do you sanction the, I'm not sure if it comes from IFS, but the, the map that has the parts there surrounding self at the core? Because it feels so similar to what we call the negative love map, where these patterns, these rings of patterns are like tourniquets in a way on our soul, our heart, our life force. And the goal is to unburden, undo some of the patterns, and then also do the opposite, which is to help self-expand to break out on its own. Yeah, that all sounds very compatible as long as you're not conveying and, and people don't have a negative attitude toward the patterns. So that would be a problem for me. Yeah, this feels like a key distinction that sometimes in our desire to help students separate from patterns, to help them understand they are not their patterns, they're blown away that they could be what we call a spiritual self, 
very similar to your language, and that it had usefulness as a child, but it has an expiration date. It has a, a shelf life. Part of what you are saying is that you can actually engage with the part or the pattern even after it's lived out its usefulness early on in life. Absolutely. And in the process of doing that, you help it transform rather than having to get rid of it or put it on the, on the shelf or something like that. And it's very relieved to be out of its role and to, have, to be able to do what it was designed to do. So that sounds like the main distinction, and it'd be great if, if you guys could experiment with that. Yeah, thank you for the, for the encouragement. I think that um, that's our own growth edge as an institute to do that. I want to ask a little bit about the myth of mono mind and generally speaking, the cultural patterns, as we might say, some of the orientation of how we view ourselves. Yours is such a holistic, feminine, embracing. One of the words I think of when I think of IFS is like, yes, yes, and yes, and over and over again. And the traditional academic community has not looked favorably on IFS, have they? No, I, <laughs> I have scars. I was in academia initially. I was at the, in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I just got pilloried when I tried to present this in there. And the, at some point, I, I, after about 10 years, I had to leave and try to take it grassroots, which is, you know, it's paid off, although, it, it, as you say, it still hasn't really infected academia that much. And it's, you know, it's a tough sell in that world because most academics basically are in their head all the time, and they, they think that's them. They think this, mod, this one mind is all there is. And if you've got parts, then you're pathology. And that comes actually from the whole DID movement, multiple personality disorders, where people clearly had parts, you know, what they call alters, and they had these horrible backgrounds. And so people started to assume the existence of these alters is a sign of pathology because the one mind got blown apart. And that's what I've been fighting my whole career, that people with that diagnosis are no different from any of us in having parts. What's different is because of the horrible abuse, theirs got very fragmented and like there are big associative walls between them. But it's the same thing, and we, we use IFS a lot with that population and find, just like everybody else, those alters transform once they feel witnessed and unburdened, and self is in there too, despite the horrific abuse. So, Yeah, the pathologizing and demonizing of ego, that feels a part of what you're talking about as well. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's rampant in the spiritual world as well, seeing ego as the enemy or, or the obstacle. What are you up to now? You've gone around the academic world and you've reached out to therapists and you're doing workshops. What's inspiring you lately? My latest sort of guidance is to bring it to larger levels of system and not just have it contained in the psychotherapy world. So I've got a number of projects in that direction 
I'm work, working a lot with social activists of various kinds and starting trainings for executive coaches so we can bring it to CEOs and have them transform their companies. And there are a small group of people who are bringing it to political levels, I mean, to high-level political kinds of discourse. And so all that's very exciting to me. I'm, you know, I'm 73. I don't have that many years left. So I never thought I'd bring it this far. But now that I have brought it this far, I just want to see how far we can go. Yeah, there's something about expanding to government and political people and activists. What's exciting about that for you? And how do you see it uh, transitioning into those areas? Yeah, you know, for me, I'm big into fractals. Fractal systems are what they call isomorphic, that it's the same form at all these different levels. In a person, I mapped out what the common roles are when parts are forced into these protective roles or the exiles. So there are managers, firefighters, and exiles. I can look at our country and show you the same issues. You see all those parts playing out in our family, in our government as well. Not just in the government, but in the country as a whole. You know, there are massive numbers of exiles in this country. I mean, something like 60% of the people live paycheck to paycheck, and there's so many people exiled because of racism and so on. So there's lots of people with lots of raw emotions who see the injustice, but don't feel empowered to do anything about it. And then when any system has a lot of exiles, they're going to have very extreme protectors. And that's what you see in the government. You'll see Donald Trump is the epitome of an extreme protector. They're just out of control. And then there's all the polarizations of people against that. And that gets kind of locked into the place where not much can happen, and there's no self to be found anywhere. And so what I'm trying to do is bring more self leadership to these kinds of systems with those eight Cs. And I've got some allies who can help with that, who have access to those levels. So I have a question about shame. I have done so much work around shame, and, and I teach about shame at every process. And so I'm trying to see and understand it for myself and for students. Is shame an exile part? The shame is usually a at least two-part, but three-part phenomena. So there is an exile who carries the sense of being bad and, and worthless. But then there's a critic who says that that's what you are, usually. When you have shame to that degree, you have to have some kind of firefighter activity to get away from it. And so you'll have some kind of addiction or some kind of dissociation or rage or something. And then that becomes circular because once the firefighter takes over, the critic kicks in to attack you for being out of control. And that goes right to the heart of that exile. And there's the data that I have to be a critic because look how you just behaved. But you just did. Yeah, you're, you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I relate to that little, that's a, a vicious cycle right there. That's right. So that's the vicious cycle that most people, particularly people with heavy firefighter activities, are caught in. But, and shame is the, actually one of the most motivating of the burdens, because as kids, we know if we're not valued, if we're worthless, we're not going to survive. And so there's this sort of inborn 
need to get rid of the shame, to have somebody who told you you were worthless change their mind or to find some kind of activity or career that proves that you're not worthless or to just distract yourself from it and get away from it. You can't stay in that level of shame very long. Most people can't. So part of what you're saying there, Dick, is that many people have built a life based on their reactions to the shame that's there. Exactly right. That is totally right. And myself included. IFS wouldn't exist had it not been for my father shaming me as a, as a kid. As the oldest of six boys? Yeah, you did your homework. The oldest of six boys, he was this prominent physician researcher. I was supposed to be that. I had ADD, which I think is probably related to my position in the family. Is ADD a firefighter in that case? Uh-huh, yeah. It's kind of dissociative firefighter. So I wasn't a good student. I was also spaced out a lot and kind of lazy. And so he would tear into me. That clearly made part of me feel worthless. You know, after I graduated college, I still wasn't a good student. I just kind of cast about as a hippie for a while. But once I found family therapy and then psychotherapy, I said, okay, maybe I can do something with this. And that desire to, be, to prove him wrong really drove me and kept me going in the face of all the attacks I had and everything. But then, you know, I became a leader of a community and that shame and the parts of me that were trying to protect me, I, you know, I, had, I was kind of narcissistic and, and also um, reactive in an angry way at times and, and didn't really care what people thought about me, which is how I survived all that. All of that made me not such a good leader. And so I was lucky to have people that confronted me and told me, you've got to work on this. And I have. And so the degree to which I seem humble now is, is really the product of a lot of hard work. In some of your conversations, you've talked a little bit about couples work and IFS. And I'm thinking about those people that you were so lucky to have in your life who confronted you and spoke to you. Did they talk to the part? Or how do you feel and what's your sense of as parts come up in relationship, what should the other person do and how do we use parts in relationships? Yeah, well, I've learned from my marriage the folly in saying you're in a part <laughs> from, from a part of mine. We call that pattern policing at Hoffman and we say that's a no-no. That's a no-no, yeah. So much better. And when I'm working with couples, I'll have them do what we call a U-turn in their focus. So generally, their protectors are focused on changing the other person. And I'll say, pa I want to pause that. I want each of you to focus inside, notice what's happening, notice the trailheads that are coming up. Sometimes I'll work with one while the other watches, which is very powerful. But other times I'll just say, ask the parts who are trying to do the talking to trust you to handle this and to just relax back so you can speak for them rather than from them. For them rather than from them. That's a key distinction. Very important distinction. Because typically, we speak from our protectors. Right? How could you do that to me? Instead, if you can say, what you just did triggered this part in me that made me feel really bad and 
and this other part wants to yell at you about it, but I would really like it if you could not do that. It's a totally different message. And the language itself really helps just to know it's not, it's sort of like you with you guys with the patterns. This is a pattern. It's not who you are. It's a part. It's not who you are. Yeah. We will put in the show notes lots of good stuff for listeners to check out, including the eight C's. You know, I was, I was thinking about this. One of the things I wish innocence began with a C because there's something about self and spiritual self that has innocence as a quality, don't you think? Very much. Yeah. There's, you know, there's lots of words that I didn't include that characterize self, not just because they don't begin with the letter C, but also because those eight Cs seem to be the most relevant to the healing process. But certainly innocence is one of those, as is joy and perspective, and there's lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've done a lot of talking about this in your career lately. What's it like to talk about it here and reflect in your place there in Chicago? You know, um, as you've alluded, it's kind of exploded the last decade or so. And it's crazy. I do have to say this like, every training you offer is sold out and waitlisted. Yeah. We have 20,000 people on a waitlist beyond my wildest dreams, actually. Congratulations. What do you think? is happening there? Why is it resonating so much? You know, I've tried to figure that out. Some of it is that I'm a, I'm a better messenger than I was, and that's related to the stuff we were talking about earlier. And some of it is there's some kind of culturally, cultural openness and, and need for something like this. So, But yeah, I can't really pinpoint anything in particular. Yeah. I imagine the work still energizes you at 73. I feel so blessed. I'm so lucky because I still love it. You know, I love doing interviews with people like you and people who I can tell have done their homework and really ask great questions. Yeah, every day I count my blessings. So I'll keep doing it till I die, probably. And I imagine keep learning as you go, because it sounds like you're continuing to push the envelope and the boundaries of how IFS can help and relate to these so many different areas. That's right. And you know, I'm also blessed to have so many people who are into it now who can take it places I never could and understand it in ways that I can't quite grasp, too. So You've been very generous with the model. Is that my just reading into it, or do you feel that way that it is important that people take it on some level into areas that you can't or don't have the time for? Yeah, I really encourage that. The only time we get controlling is if people want to become IFS therapists, we want to maintain some quality control so that there are a number of organizations or people trying to run trainings that just are not the kind of quality that people need to do this. So it's really been hard for me because my nature is to just encourage everybody to do it to try to set limits on that kind of thing. Well, I am grateful for the time you've set aside for this conversation. I feel totally inspired. Thank you, Drew. I've really enjoyed it. Clearly, you're in a lot of self. Yeah. When different modalities can have some sort of overlap, a Venn diagram, it's really exciting because then people don't have to feel like they have to choose 
that they can take some parts of each. Yeah, and from my understanding, Hoffman is a big thing, too. It's, it's really grown a lot, too. It has, and we, we have a big wait list as well. Not quite as long as yours, but... That's great. Thank you, Dick. You're very welcome, Drew. As I say, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.